The Anton Savage Show Saturday with Nifty Business on News Talk. We are joined by the Minister for Justice, uh, Helen McEntee. Good morning, Minister. Morning, Anton. Hi. Uh, we do obviously have to talk about the um, issues that there are in Angarda Shikana and what is being perceived as a significant snub to the Commissioner. Before that, this week you are announcing, I think, the sort of the official launch of the Cohen Agency, which is going to be an agency to distribute money through charities and service providers for victims of, of violence. No, this will do so much more than that. So uh, this is an agency whose sole focus for the first time ever will be combating domestic sexual and gender based violence. And it will do so in a number of ways. So, yes, it will provide funding to organisations, to the wonderful people who support victims on the ground. But so Dublin Rape Crisis Network, Women's Aid, Men's Aid, Self-Iron. Refuges, supports right across the country. But it won't just do that. It will look at, well, where are the gaps? Where do we need to expand services? Where do we need more funding? And how do we work with the sector to do that? It'll also look at what information do we need? So information is absolutely key. We have some levels of research, but to really get a clear picture of what's going on, we need to make sure that we understand the facts. And to date, the facts are absolutely frightening. So a recent study that was done by some of the organisations would show that domestic violence is happening at a much younger age, in relationships at a much younger age, coercion is happening at a much younger age, but also children themselves are being impacted in a way that we never knew before. So the more of this type of information and data that we can gather, the better our laws are, the better we can protect people, the better we can actually communicate to try and prevent this type of behaviour. The two issues that have always been endemic when it comes to domestic and usually gender-based violence is first of all, the reluctance of the victim and often the fear of the victim in coming forth and secondly, the reluctance of the victim to carry through prosecutions. How do you combat that? So this agency will be responsible for the things I've just mentioned, but also will drive the Zero Tolerance Plan. Now, the Zero Tolerance Plan is a plan that I've worked on with all of the sector, with my department, with all of government over the last two years, which sets out how we can combat domestic violence through prevention, through supporting victims, but when victims come forward, that we'll also have a system that doesn't re-traumatise them. The court system does not work for victims now. That's very clear. There are people who do not come forward. In fact, the majority of victims don't come forward because the system does not support them. So there are countless actions in the strategy, everything from better training for our guardie, our legal profession, our judiciary, our healthcare professionals, better support for victims, so accompaniment when they're in courts, better laws so that people come forward. Only in the last two months we have introduced and I have introduced a new law around stalking and non-fatal strangulation, clearly highlighting to victims that if this is happening to you, please come forward. The law is on your side okay. and we will work with you. So You're there's lots of ways. millions into this. How and when do we measure whether or not there has been any effect? Well, it's only over time really, but I mean, this problem is getting worse. So even though we are speaking about it more and more, what's clear is that this is a problem that's not going away. So either we deal with it now, and that's why I'm genuinely, and given the topic we're talking about, it might sound unusual, but I am genuinely excited about this because this is the first time that government and all of the sector have come together. And I'm so proud because the team that I've worked with in the department, but not just that, teams in all of the agencies and victims and survivors themselves have come together and said, we need to do something much bigger than we've ever done before. And this is what we have here. What will success look like? That we have less victims, but that we change behaviours. I mean, if we, we can provide supports for victims, but if we don't actually change the, un, the, the opinions that underpin all of these behaviours, 
then we're not doing it right. So, you know, there's a long okay. road ahead, but this is really exciting. And again, I'm so proud of everyone who's worked on this. This all comes concurrent with fairly significant challenges for <laughs> Garda management and within on Garda Shiakona when it comes to issues relating to um, morale and um, their satisfaction with the way that they are being led. The GRA representing, what, 11,000 out of the 14,000 sworn members has said that they do not want the Garda Commissioner to attend. They have extended an invite to you are you going to go? And if so, isn't that a snub on the Commissioner? So they have extended an invite to me. Um, it's two months out, so I can't say whether I'll attend or not. Um, if nothing I, changes, will you attend? Well, what I can say is that I am hugely disappointed by the decision that they've taken to not extend an invite. And I really do hope that they will reconsider. Why are you um, so disappointed? Well, I think this once again personalises um, a situation where... Um, you know, you have concerns and a lot of this is related to industrial relations issues, whether it's a roster, whether it's pay talks, whether it's other issues that are going on in the background. Whether it's their their incapacity to police the way that they want because they fear undue discipline, the oversight of GSOC being overwhelming for them. They are also issues that the GRA has raised. There are many issues and the only way that you deal with issues is by actually engaging with not just the person but the office. And again, this shouldn't be personalised that you engage with the commissioner and his office to try and resolve them. We have in recent years, and perhaps this isn't known, but since 2019, it is now the case that when it comes to industrial relations issues, the Garda Commissioner is legally the person that the associations engage with. Before that, it was the minister. Before that, it was the department. And for many years, the associations fought to be part of the industrial relations mechanisms, whether it's the WRC, the Labour Court. And so that has changed. They now have access to those mechanisms, but also now their direct employer, which is the commissioner, that is the person that they legally have to engage with. But would you with, not so. say, given what we have seen, I mean, a 99% vote of no confidence and now this snub at the um, the convention, would you not say that that is, in, in football parlance, the manager completely losing the dressing room? Well, the commissioner is appointed by the government of the day, the democratically elected government, and it's the government that will remove uh, a commissioner if that were to be the case. But I have full confidence in the commissioner. I think the role of any commissioner is to make sure that you have an organisation that keeps people safe and that protects its members. Well, let me ask you then, because obviously the commissioner answers to you. Have you spoken to the commissioner and said, all right, Drew, how exactly are you going to get everybody back within the fold? Because there is one thing between having a gap to close. This is a chasm between the people who answer to him and management. Well, I'll say this to you. So we had challenges last year. There was a vote and obviously people made a particular view known. And I do think a lot of that was connected with the rosters and ongoing disputes there. Since then, there have been extensive discussions, there are monthly meetings, there are lots of issues that have been, you know, on the table that are being discussed. But you also have a huge amount of investment. We have body cameras that are now going out to tender. You have incapacitant spray that's been just organised and is now being disseminated to all of the members to respond to what we saw before Christmas. You've more money being invested than ever before. This has all happened since last year. And yet out of nowhere without any prior warning, without any indication that there was, you know, an upset here. This decision was taken and was relayed through the media. And I just, I I don't think this is the right approach. If you have concerns or issues, you have to be able to talk to somebody. So do you feel you were blindsided by the GRA? 
I think everybody was, to be honest. This was not something that was brought to anyone's attention. And that's why I'm really disappointed. That's why I would ask them to reconsider. As I said, things have changed. And, and I accept that there's a lot of change has happened in the organisation in a very short space of time. And the in that context, though, if nothing changes, how would you be able to attend the conference? I mean, it would be the ultimate um, vote of no confidence from you and the commissioner if you did go, wouldn't it? Well, as I've said, I really do hope that they will reconsider their position. That's I can't be any clearer than that. I really do hope that they reconsider their position. Um, you have to be able to represent your members and the only way you can represent your members is by engaging with the person who you are legally supposed to engage with to resolve any of the matters. And if you're not talking to that person and, you know, again, this shouldn't be about one individual. I do believe that the commissioner his focus is making sure that we have an organisation that protects people, but also that protects its members for all of the reasons that I've outlined uh, and all of the changes that have been taken place. It's not one individual that has come in and decided to make these changes. These were agreed by government following a very difficult period in Angarda Siakana where a lot of uncomfortable truths maybe were, were realised and a decision was taken to make sure that we improve our structures, that we put in place, you know, uh, better supports for people, that we make sure that we have the best policing system possible. But that should not be personalised to one individual. And that, unfortunately, is what is happening here. While we're on policing matters, one of the big issues, of course, that we are seeing um, coming through in terms of the national discourse now is the issue of immigration. And at the heart of that has been a number of arson attacks on potential uh, housing for incoming immigrants and for refugees. Are you satisfied with the pace of investigation and prosecution of those arsons? Uh, yes, I am. Um, I don't think there's any time period by which you can set a clock and say this must be concluded. Um, arson is an extremely serious offence, but it also is a very high bar if you want to bring forward a prosecution. So Gardaí have to painstakingly go through whatever evidence they have, whether it's CCTV, whether it's, um, you know, witness uh, insight, whether it's any type of evidence uh, and make sure that when they go to the DPP that they have as strong evidence as possible. People have been arrested. There have been 12 arrests um, related to a number of different offences. But this is a an extremely serious crime. And, you know, again, I've said this many times, people need to realise that there is a penalty of up to life in prison for someone who commits arson, but even someone who vandalises a property who thinks, well, I'm making a protest. I don't agree with this. It's up to 10 years in prison. This is an extremely serious crime. And so the Gardaí are treating us with the seriousness that they should. And on the same topic, these take time. Whenever we discuss immigration, one of the issues that gets <laughs> raised is that of vetting. And you will have seen the concerns that there were particularly about um, uh, groups of men being brought in and put in, in local areas. Are you satisfied with the level of vetting um, that is going on? And if so, why do you think people still have such concerns? Well, when a person comes into the country, me, you, anybody, we present our passport and we're checked against a particular system. Uh, so if somebody is coming through and seeking an international protection, that's no different. Uh, but when they then apply for asylum, there's a further round of checks. They provide fingerprinting, uh, they have to go through interviewing uh, and they're checked against the system And is again. it working? Are they uncovering criminal past? Are they uncovering potential risks to community if they be there? So every single day, Gardaí are removing people from the state. They're removing European citizens. They're removing people from outside of Europe. They are charging Irish citizens. So every day of the week, there are people who are committing crimes and some of them are being removed. And that is happening already. But there is a perception out there that 
there are people coming in with criminal backgrounds that we don't know about and that somehow crime is increasing because of the people that are coming in. And there are simply no facts to back that up. None whatsoever. In fact, if you look at, um, you know, if you look at statistics, I'd say it is underrepresentative in terms of the population of people who are not born in this country and crimes that are being committed. As in that it is your assertion that there is a lower crime rate among those seeking refuge than there is among the indigenous population? I, I'm saying what's clear is that there is certainly not an increase and there's certainly not a, a correlation between the increasing numbers that we've seen in the last two years and an increase in crime. That's very clear. But, you know, the checks that are there before somebody then is given international protection, there's a background check as well to make sure that they haven't committed any crime since they've been in the country as well. But we have to move away from this perception that because somebody comes here seeking protection, that we're automatically going to assume the worst. This could be anybody's brother, anybody's family that's fleeing war, that's fleeing persecution. And I think inherently Irish people, our natural instinct is to provide protection and to support people. But it's challenging at the moment because of the number of people that are suddenly arriving where we've only had smaller numbers in years gone by. Final thing to ask you just as a member of Cabinet, your, your reaction to, which is the um, revelations that not just one, that being Breed O'Keefe in the form of the former Ch- Chief Financial Officer of RTE, but a number of senior executives in RTE have been handed what by, if you take the average industrial wage, are vast amounts of money on their way out the door from senior executive positions. Is that appropriate? Look, I, I think what frustrates me about all of this is we keep finding out new information. But that information specifically, is it okay to give people tens if not hundreds of thousands of uh, euros of taxpayers' money, of licensed payers' money as they depart an organisation, public organisation? Well, without knowing what their contracts were, without knowing what was agreed, it's hard for me to say whether they should or shouldn't have gotten it. What's frustrating is that these are revelations that keep coming out when there are proddings and when people are asked questions. I mean, all of this should have been laid out months ago. Well, the Director General and says he is precluded. To move on when this keeps Indeed, happening. The DG says he's precluded from giving the details of uh, some of those packages, including uh, that of the person responsible for Toy Show the Musical. Yet we got the details of Breed O'Keefe's package. Would you be in support of the notion that he should give all of those details? I think at this stage, every. Uh, anything that's relevant to what we're trying to do here and that is make sure at the end of the day we have a functioning RTE that serves people and that is a strong public service broadcaster. Whatever information helps to do that and get us past this point. I mean, we can't move past this point if there keeps, you know, if we keep getting new revelations. So we need to have all of the information laid out bare. Within the law, I'm not saying that we should break any contracts or, you know, go outside of the law, but we need to have all of the information there so that we can move on. There's a lot of really great people working in RTE. Uh, This is putting huge pressure and really uh, it's very difficult for anybody to move forward and think, how are we going to to, to have a public service broadcaster that serves people to the best of its ability? And, you know, with all of this coming out, it's very difficult to do that. Minister, thank you very much. That is Minister uh, Helen McEntee, Minister for Justice. The Anton Savage Show, Saturday. With Nifty Business. Saturday morning at nine. On News Talk.